Good morning, Gospel Life Church. It's good to be back. My family and I had the pleasure of enjoying the Wisconsin Dells last weekend and the first half of this week. Uh, thanks to Paul. <coughs> I don't see him here. I don't think he's here today. Paul Burr for preaching last week and uh, kicking off our summer series in the Psalms. And in case you were wondering, I don't know if he mentioned or not, we'll be in the Psalms now until Labor Day. And then uh, upon Jeremy's return, after his sabbatical, we'll be, he will be starting a series in Zechariah. So let's get started. Psalm 19 is a familiar psalm to most of us that grew up in the church and read our Bibles on a regular basis. To some of us, it may not be as familiar, but my hope is that by the end of today, you'll have a good understanding of it, and more importantly, see what it's teaching as good and beautiful. So it's to that end that I want to pray now. Lord, here we are again in your word, day after day, night after night. This is where we need to be. Help us now to see your word as perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and maybe most importantly, desirable above all things. In Christ's name, amen. I read a study a couple weeks ago about the Bible and it was after I read this study that I kind of decided on preaching this psalm for reasons that will become become evident as we move along here. Here's the headline. Fewer in the U.S. now see the Bible as the literal word of God. Now, this wasn't conducted by some fly-by-night Twitter poll of 80 people, um, you know, someone who calls themselves a researcher. This was Gallup, all right? Um, one of the more trusted researchers out there, they were collecting data before collecting data was cool, right? Um, the data on this research goes all the way back to 1976. So for 46 years, they've been conducting the same study um, and gathering the data on it. Let me go through some of the results and uh, before we head into the psalm. They give three possible answers or groups, kind of groups of people. First group is that the Bible, people that believe that the Bible is the actual word of God to be taken literally. And in 1976, that was 38% of Americans. Now in 2022, it's at an all-time low of 20% of Americans. The second group was that the Bible was fables, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. In 1976, that was just 13% of people. And in 2022, that is now 29% of people in America. 9% higher than those that believe the Bible to be True. The third group is those that believe that the Bible is inspired by God, but not to be taken literally. And that has held steady from 1976 to now, anywhere between 45% and 52%, coming in this year at 49%. So you get that? There's three categories. Those who see it from God and to be taken literally. Those who see it as from God, but we don't need to take it literally and those who see it as fable and history. Some people were very surprised that only 20% of Americans hold that the Bible is true. Honestly, that doesn't surprise me. Not when almost 50% of it think it's from God, 
but we don't make it need to take it literally. Now, that's not the only result of the study. Here are some other interesting facts. They looked at the relation between the percentage of people who value religion, right? The importance of religion and the views of the Bible as the actual word of God. And this chart, I wish I had a chart up here or something, but I don't. That's okay. You can look it up on mine later. Um, this chart was telling, and from 2001 till now, the importance of religion was about 25 to 30% higher, but steadily declining, just like the belief in the Bible. And the chart was almost identical to the belief in the Bible. It kind of went, and they just followed each other. So the importance of religion and belief in the Bible kind of did the same sort of pattern. It was really interesting. Then the study looked at religious affiliation. And lastly, it broke that down into religious service attendance and education. This is what was really shocking to me. It had a category um, for people that identified as evangelical or born again. And in that category, the percent of people that believe the Bible to be the actual word of God and to be taken literally was 40%, just 40%. 51% of born-again evangelicals say that it's inspired by God, but not to be taken literally. And 2% say it's a book of fables and history. Now, I don't know how you can call yourself an evangelical and born-again and then say the Bible's fables and history. But anyway, so 60% of people who claim to be born-again Christians don't think the Bible is to be taken literally. As one commentator noted, and I echoed this thought, it's hard to believe that we've gotten to a place where less than half of evangelicals believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. One more comment on this research. Now, like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure how they classify what an evangelical is or what a born-again Christian is. I, I know how I classify it, but I'm not sure how they do. But one group they have, which is easy to classify, is those who attend a religious service weekly. And the percentage of those people who attend a religious service weekly and believe the Bible to be true was the highest group. It was 44%. Still less than half of people that attend a religious service weekly believe it to be true. Now, here's the question they didn't ask. The question that I think would be the most telling. What percentage of people that think it to be from God and not to be taken literally, literally or think it to be fables in history, actually read it. You who cast judgment on it as false, tell me where is your copy of it, right? When was the last time you cracked the cover of the good book? Do you study it? Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Do you sit under Bible-based preaching? Or could I write, read me in the dust on the cover of it? I guess it goes without saying that, those, that these groups don't read it much because they don't believe it to be true. But what if it was the other way around, however? You don't believe it to be true because you don't read it much. I'm guessing that if we ask the 40% of evangelicals who believe it to be the Word of God and to be taken literally, how often do you read it? We would have a very high percentage of people that actually read it and believe it to be true. And that leads us into Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19, 19 can be broken into 
three parts, verses 1 to 6, 7 to 11, and 12 to 14. 1 to 6 takes a look at what we call general revelation, meaning it's God revealing himself in a general way to everyone, specifically in this psalm, using nature. Verses 7 to 11 is what we call special revelation. It's God adding to the general revelation a written account of history and redemption through Jesus Christ. That's what these verses are about. It's really a a praise to the special revelation of God. And verses 12 to 14 is a closing prayer uh, that David prays after expressing this praise for God's general and special revelation. Now I'm going to get back to that study from Gallup a bit later and how it ties into all this. But for now, we'll turn to the text and take a closer look at each of these three sections. Verse 1, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is just the beginning of the psalmist setting the groundwork for this general revelation. What he is saying is pretty simple. If you don't think there's a a God who is real, go look outside. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. Declaring the glory of God, that's no small job. Think about that. Not just showing or telling, but declaring, proclaiming. Now, some of you, like me, are city kids. I grew up in the city. I've lived here my entire life. If you asked me to count all the stars in the night sky, I could. There's eight of them. (laughs) Thirteen if there's no moon out. You know what I'm saying, right? However, about 27 years ago, I took my first trip to the Boundary Waters. If you've never been there, or up that way at least, I would highly recommend it. I'd love to get back there sometime, especially with my kids. Little known fact, maybe it's not little known, maybe all you know this, I don't know. A fact is that in September of 2020, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area was declared a dark sky sanctuary by the International Dark Sky Association, and it's one of only 13 dark sky sanctuaries in the world, and it happens to be the largest at over 1 million acres in size. Now, I cannot describe to you what the sky looks like on a clear light, clear night with no moon. You can see the asteroid belt like it's an HD, right? The entire sky is absolutely ablaze with stars and planets from one horizon to the other. It takes your breath away. You don't sit there and stare up at the stars and think about yourself. It declares the glory of God, not the glory of self. And it does so without apology. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, let's go west. Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Idaho. You may know they call Montana big sky country. And for those of us that have driven out that way, you know why. The sky is big. You look around here and you see trees, buildings, that sort of thing. You go out there and you see sky and you can see forever. And it is amazing. Hundreds of miles of nothing as far as you can see. 
You look to your left, and you can see a storm 50 miles away. And you look to your right, and it's clear and sunny for 50 miles. It really is amazing. I have a friend that lives out that way. He's in Utah now. Um, he told me a story of a friend of his that was visiting from New York City. And uh, on the way from, they went to pick her up at, at the Salt Lake City Airport. And on the drive from Salt Lake City to Rock Springs, Wyoming, where he was living at the time, this young lady had somewhat of a small panic attack. And uh, when my friend asked her, what, what's wrong? What are you panicking about? And she replied, there's nothing here. It's just all this sky. <laughs> and uh, being from New York City, that troubled her because she was used to buildings and stoplights and street corners everywhere you looked. And that is the kind of sky that proclaims his handiwork. Now moving on, verse 2 to 3. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. What the psalmist is getting at here is that there is an order in creation that reveals knowledge, and it doesn't have a voice, but it speaks like it does have a voice if you listen. Look at that first part. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's a pattern here that almost all of us take for granted, day and night, over and over again, that tells us something about God. It speaks, and it reveals knowledge, and it speaks without using a voice or word. So ask yourself, what is it saying? What kind of knowledge is it revealing? Maybe order? It tells us that our God is a God of order and not a God of chaos. The fact that he turns the lights out at night for us when we need rest tells us that we can find that physical rest at night while we sleep, but we also need spiritual rest that we can find in him. It's not hard to decipher something about God in the rising and the setting of the sun. Like Ben just prayed, all those wonderful things from the things we can only see with a microscope to the things we can only see with a telescope. It's not hard to see God in that stuff. Verses 4 to 6, their voice, your text might say a measuring line, goes out throughout all the earth. In their word to the end of the world, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man he runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist now turns his focus specifically to the sun. He sees the sky and the heavens that he just talked about in verse 1 as a tent for the sun. And the sun itself as this bridegroom as well as this strong man. He poetically takes us through the course of the day as the sun makes its journey across the sky. The sunrise in the morning, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Let's say the word picture here is a newly married man that has spent the night with his bride and he steps out of his chamber in the morning and the joy he feels is that of the sunrise he sees. Then the sun, like a strong man, runs its course with joy from one end of the sky to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat all day long. 
providing light and heat, declaring, proclaiming, pouring forth speech and knowledge from sunrise to sunset all day long, the glory of God revealed. Even in the sunrise itself and the sunset itself. Did anyone see it last night, the sunset? It was beautiful. It's this pink, blue, as Madeline, my daughter calls it, cotton candy sky. It was wonderful. That's general revelation. Things that God has revealed about himself generally to everyone. We see it in the New Testament as well. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is laying the groundwork for the gospel by showing us that we are all guilty because we can all see these created things. Romans 1, 19 to 23. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to us, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, their, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So rather than worship the creator of these things, we tend to worship the created things. You see what it says there? His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God has shown himself not fully, but clearly in the things that have been made. If we want to see him fully, we must move on in the psalm to the next part. Verses 7 to 11 give us special revelation. Verses 1 to 6 tell us that there is a creator and tell us what he may be like. Verses 7 to 11 tell us how we can know him fully and what he requires of us. See, the truth is that the God who created all these things isn't hiding himself. He has made himself known in his word and his law. The thrust of these five verses isn't necessarily to tell us about who God is, but to tell us that we can know about who he is, and that knowledge comes from his law, his written word. In 7 to 9, he tells us about them. The psalmist here goes through a poetic verse calling out three different things each time. He first gives different names for the law each time. Second, he gives a different kind of descriptor related to that name. And third, he gives a response or an effect to that descriptor. First, the list of names, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules. Next, he has these descriptors as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. Next is the list of responses to those descriptors, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, Rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, and righteous all together. Isn't that a wonderful description of the Word of God? 
Look closely. It's not a description of God, per se, but it's a description of His Word and what it does in our hearts and lives. But in another sense, it is a description of God, and the Word is really just the tool that God uses to accomplish these things. Let me ask you, reviving the soul. Does your soul feel revived when you spend time in the Word? Making wise the simple, even the most uneducated person can fill a room with wisdom because of his time in this book. Rejoicing the heart. The joy that is found on these pages can make a heart and a mouth sing with praise. Enlightening the eyes. Reading this book can be like walking into a spiritually dark room and flipping on the light switch and being able to see everything. Enduring forever. This book is timeless. It's been around in some form for almost 6,000 years, and it still affects people today all over the world. And righteous altogether. It will not lead you down the wrong path, but all that it teaches is good and right. Now imagine for a moment with me that this was a description of a vitamin that you could take every day. A vitamin that was perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. A vitamin that would revive your soul, make you wise, cause your heart to rejoice and lighten your eyes. It endured forever and it was altogether righteous. Would you take that vitamin? Would you want that? Would you stock up on that one? Well, the good news is it's not a vitamin that's a figment of my imagination. It's a book, and it's a book that really exists, a book that all of us have access to. And if you're here and you don't have one, there's some out on the table out there, and you can take one and have it. It's our gift to you. Just put your name and phone number in the front so when you leave it here, we know who to give it back to. The response given by the psalmist now in verse 10 and 11 is wonderful. More to be desired are they the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, and the rules, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. More to be desired are they. What a powerful phrase. Tell me, if they are so desirable, why do only 40% of evangelicals see it like that? If they are sweeter than drippings from the honeycomb, why are 60% of us not convinced? I mean, come on. Better than gold? Even much fine gold? He does give an answer in verse 11, but to be honest, I want to take us deeper than his poetic response. Verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So one, your servant is warned, and two, keeping them there is great reward. And the reward is clarity. He already told us that part. Reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, righteous altogether. But back to the desire. Why is belief in the Bible at an all-time low? Why does nobody desire it? Let's hone in on that for a minute. 
And I think the answer is, like I said before, it's not that the Bible is undesirable and therefore I don't read it. No, I don't read it and therefore it's not very desirable. Apologetically speaking, there are several ways that we know the Bible is true and I'm not going to take the time to lay them all out here this morning except for one and it's one that I think can be most helpful as we try to see this great reward because that's what I'm assuming we want. We would all love for this list, the reviving of the soul and making wise the simple and such, to be for us and not some sort of mystery that's unattainable. We all want this desire to increase in our hearts. We want to taste this thing that's sweeter than honey. And one of the primary ways that we know that our Bible is true is what John Calvin calls the internal testimony of the Spirit. Let me read this quote from you from Calvin. The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, the word will not find acceptance in men's heart before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaim what have been divinely commanded, because until he illuminates their minds, they ever wander among doubts. What he is saying is this. The primary way we see this desire for something better than gold increase is by the Spirit. And the primary way the Spirit works is by reading his word. It's a cycle. The more you read it, the more you desire it. The more you desire it, the more you read it. And on and on it goes. If you find yourself in the 60% of people who don't see it as true and wonderful and life-giving, ask yourself, are you reading it? The reason why so many don't believe is because so many don't read it. Now, this is not some complex 10 steps to a better Christian walk or the five ways to live your life in the age of social media or three steps to enjoying Jesus. It's one thing, one thing that's to be desired more than gold, much fine gold. And don't waste the two amazing things you have. We can read and we have the Bible, right? That's the case, that's not the case everywhere in the world, right? Not everywhere in the world can read, and not everywhere in the world has the Bible in their language. We have both. And if you can't read, you can probably listen, and there are hundreds of apps that will read the Bible to you. Or if you're in your car and you're driving, instead of listening to the radio, listen to the Bible for a few minutes. Or at night when you go to bed, just listen to the Bible as you fall asleep. What better thing to listen to as you fall asleep? Read it. Read it and read it. And before you know it, it will be more desirable than gold. And in it, you will find this great reward. It is the source for life of the Christian. Now, David's closing prayer, verses 12 to 14. I'm going to look at 12 and the first part of 13. Who can discern his heirs? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He prays here for the sin he does unconsciously and for the sin he does consciously. Hidden faults, unconscious sin, and presumptuous sins, conscious sin. Second half of 13, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now the psalmist, David, closes out this psalm in the best way possible, and that's with the gospel. Let me ask you, how in the world can David say, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression? How can he say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight? He's a sinner. We're all sinners. He's not blameless. He's to be condemned. He just admitted it. He has sins that he doesn't even know about, not to mention the ones he does know about. Now, he can say all this because at the end of verse 14, the last sentence, my rock and my redeemer. David and us, we have a redeemer, a rock, a God who has shown himself in the heavens and the sky above, a God who has given a law, a testimony, and commandments that are sweeter than honey and finer than gold, a God who sees the heirs that I see and the ones I don't see, a God who is a redeemer, who loves us and will not leave us to our own sin. You see, this law and testimony, the precepts, commandments, the fear and the rules that are perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true, that revive the soul, make wise the simple, rejoice the heart, enlighten the eyes, endure forever, and are altogether righteous. This word of God, this word is our Redeemer because this word has a name, and it's Jesus. In John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace for us that haven't picked up our Bible in six months is grace for you. Pick it up today. Because this word became flesh and died as a man to redeem us once and for all, the godly for the ungodly. And this is what we're reminded of every week at this table. The bread broken, the blood poured out. And do you know how I know about this? And do you want to know how you can know about this more? I read it in a book, and so can you. Let's pray. Father, we come to the table now to remind us of these things to remind us of your law that is perfect, reviving the soul and became flesh. Your fear that is clean, enduring forever and was broken for us. You are more than 
more desirable than gold, even much fine gold. Come now, send your spirit and encourage us with these elements, I pray. Amen.